Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. We've got a long reading today. We have moved on from the Gospel of Matthew to the Book of Acts. And we pick up today in chapter 10, verses 1 through 17 and 34 to 48. It's the story of a God-fearing Roman soldier and his welcome into the community of Jesus' followers. It raised up for us all kinds of questions about the complex interaction between our identities, ethnic and otherwise, and our faith, including this big one. What if God works outside of human categories altogether? What if God doesn't use categories at all? Thanks for being with us. Happy birthday, Bobby! Hey, it is my birthday today. It is your birthday! Yeah. I feel like we have uh, recorded uh, podcasts on both of our birthdays this year, which is kind of amazing. Because you were talking about your colonoscopy birthday. Yeah. It is a blessing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like both kidding and not. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Birthdays are interesting as you get get older. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You become like, my my kid is so excited about every birthday. She's like, I'm a bigger kid now. And I'm like, every birthday I have, I'm like, oh no, I'm closer to death. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It is but a but another point in the space-time continuum. It is. But I hope a happy point. Do you have any happy, happy birthday news? It's still morning while we're recording this, so maybe the true festivities, like the bouncy house, is for after work. Yeah, the bouncy house is gonna be later today. I don't actually know. <laughs> My birthday falls at a really awkward time for a pastor and a mm. professor. Because mm-hmm. it's like midterm, like pushing hard for the end, spring registration, Holy Week, like all of these things. And so and it's a little it's a little bit of a stressful moment. But I will say on my way uh, in today, I was just thinking about like what, you know, like how do you reflect on a birthday? And then I was thinking like, I have a really good life. And it was kind of nice to be mm. like this life that I am living and this moment that I am living in is just really good. Like I got a, I got a family that I love. I got a job that, you know, is like 80% great. Yeah, <laughs> I got Bible work. I got you. I got, good. you know, like it's good. So that's how I'm reflecting on this birthday. Like I'm trying not to think overly much mm-hmm. about my actual age or like how much closer death is than it used to be. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, <laughs> live in the moment. That's a very Ecclesiastes kind of, kind of thing it is, to do. It is so Ecclesiastes. Yeah. And I, um. I can't remember where I, it's probably just some stupid meme from Facebook, but read somewhere a long time ago that was like, there's a point that, I don't know, maybe the midlife crisis point is where you start saying like, is this it? Like, this is it? This is, yeah. you know, like my life is not infinite potential anymore. Like my life looks like a thing and yeah. this is all there is. And then 
the point you look forward to after that is that like, well, this is not half bad. Like yeah. if if this is what it is, yeah. that's pretty actually it's pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's not infinite potential. You're never gonna be probably an Olympic ice skater at this point. I think those dreams have passed me by. Yeah. They've slid right on past. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. I did ice skate once, but I was not, maybe twice, but I was not good at it. I ended, yes. Like you went to an ice rink two times? I think that is it. you were like, okay. For ice skates. That's not the same. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've landed on, yes, I landed on my face a few times in ways that were unpleasant to me. It's unpleasant. I don't know if it's possible to land on your face in a way that's pleasant to you now that I think about it. But But for me, it was unpleasant. especially unpleasant on a sheet of ice while you have blades strapped to your feet. Yes. (laughs) So my dreams of Olympic ice skating ended, you know, many, many moons ago. Mm-hmm. Good. You've already grieved that. Yeah, I've, I've, let that, yeah. I've let that go. Well, on this occasion of your birthday, Bobby, we are starting a new book. We are. We are in the book of Acts today. Yes. And we are, we're starting in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. So I feel like there's sort of like doubly so what <laughs> yeah. what what's happening? What is this book? How does it relate to the Gospels? What? Is there anything we need to know from the first 10 chapters? It's a <laughs> long reading today. Yeah. So so we can't spend a whole lot of time <laughs> introducing, but, um, and yet I know we need a little bit of orientation. So what would you offer? Well, so, you know, the narrative lectionary in the period between Easter and Pentecost, it does two things. One is it moves into the book of Acts. And the second is it talks about a letter from the Apostle Paul, who is a character in the book of Acts. And so in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to Romans, and we'll get to talk about that. The book of Acts itself basically is narrating what happens to the early church in the weeks and months and years after Jesus is resurrected and then ascends into heaven. And so what has happened at this point in Acts chapter 10, essentially, is that the Holy Spirit has come on the apostles in a text that we will read actually later when we get to Pentecost— and has mm-hmm. empowered the apostles, both the original followers of Jesus and some new sort of diaspora Jewish followers to start spreading the gospel. In the first 10 chapters, the gospel has continued to be a Jewish phenomenon. So the converts, the people who begin following Jesus are still Jewish in their mm-hmm. religious belief and practice. And so the book of Acts is working with this idea of if Jesus was Jewish, the gospel was Jewish, how did we get to this Gentile-dominated religion? And Mm. this story that we're reading today is one of the first stories about a Gentile convert to following Jesus. And it sort of begins this longer narrative in the book of Acts about the spread of the gospel throughout the Gentile world. But this moment in Acts, the, the story of Cornelius that we're reading today is the first truly Gentile convert to Christianity following Jesus. I think that is, is that enough? That's do you think? That's really helpful. I, I mean, I don't know what you're not saying, but what you're saying, <laughs> <laughs> but what you're saying is really helpful. Yeah. I think, I think that's good. And if other questions come up along the way, then we will address them as they come. That sounds great. Awesome. So we are in Acts chapter 10. The narrative lectionary gives us the chunk at the beginning and the chunk at the end. Right. And it leaves out the middle, but we'll make sure we give you enough to Yeah, follow the plot. Yes. So I'm picking up in verse 1 of chapter 10, and I'm reading from the NRSV. 
In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. All right. First scene. Yes. Yes. I find it really interesting what this text tells us, what it sort of raises up to tell us about Cornelius and what it doesn't tell us. Mm. So it tells us he is, I guess I wrote down that he's Italian, although it says we should assume he's Italian, right? Italian cohort, he's probably Italian. I think so. Yeah, that's the way that I read that is he is a Roman soldier actually from Italy. So he's like a Roman's Roman kind of, that's kind of guy. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And then what else does it tell us? It tells us that. It tells us he's a centurion, which is not Not a a horseman. (laughs) Not a horseman. (laughs) Yeah, although that would be such a better story if he was a horseman. I do still enjoy occasionally picturing them as horsemen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a centurion is a is a Roman officer, as you know, that it's kind of weird because you always I always want them to be in charge of a hundred men, but in fact a, a Roman century was eighty men. And so he was probably the commanding officer of a 80-man regiment. There were other officers who would have been over a like a collection of regiments, like maybe 480 men or 800 men. And so maybe Cornelius was one of those. But mm-hmm. he is, I mean, I think the essential point is he's, a Rome, he's an officer in the Roman army. Mm-hmm. And he seems to be an active, like active duty because he's got men still under his command. Is that how you, is that how you understand all of that? I mean, that that makes sense to me. So we've got information about, like, his nationality. Yes. His occupation. Yes. And then it tells us, I guess I would say something about, I don't know, his disposition or a little more about his internal yeah. life. Yeah. Right? He's a devout man who feared God with all his household. Yeah. It's so funny. I thought it was going to be feared God with all his heart. No, I fear God with my, <laughs> with my, <household. laughs> with my children. That's how I fear God. Yeah. Okay, fine. And then it moves on to his, I guess I would say his actions. Yeah. He gives alms generously and he prayed constantly to God. Yeah. I mean, I have, the questions in my mind are, I think you'll say like, yes, this should have been obvious to the reader. But like, I maybe foolishly reading reading this, it was not immediately clear to me that A, he was not Jewish because now the way the Jewish world works, like, of course you could be Italian Jew. You could be, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But but it does it seem pretty clear to you that by virtue of the fact that they say he's Italian, well, that they say he's of the Italian cohort, it's clear that he's not of the people of Israel? Well, so there were Jewish communities in Rome. And so it, it would be entirely possible, even in this period, to be a Jew f- from Italy who lived in Italy. I think that term, though, the God-fearer or the God-worshipper, the CEB gives it as Gentile God-worshipper, which mm. sort of like puts a very fine point on it. 
But you know, there's this category of the God fearer, which are people who are not Jewish, but they are reverential toward the Jewish God, but they haven't been circumcised. They don't keep kosher. Like they haven't actually done the conversion. Right. So I think that's the way that I would read Cornelius is he's like a Gentile's Gentile. He's like a Roman's Roman. He's a soldier. He's as Roman as you get. He's as Gentile as you get. Mm. But he recognizes the Jewish God as the true God and is reverential toward that God and behaves ethically in the ways that that God commands and invites. And so he's sort of in this interesting space of committed Roman Gentile and also just at the edge of worshiping the God of Judaism, who of course is also the God of Jesus in the understanding of the New Testament. Yeah. That's as you were thinking, I just, as, I'm sorry, as you were talking, it had me thinking the way that the, this introduction of him unfolds is sort of like saying that he is, it like gives you this, I don't know, maybe like internal description of his, like his nationality. And then the way his nationality plays out is in this like really full fledged way. Like his right. loyalty is not to be questioned. <laughs> right. And then it gives you this internal disposition. I don't know what other word to use. He is devout and feared God. Yes. And then how that played out in his life, really, again, in like a big and unabashed, unquestionable way. Yes. So the dynamic that's playing out in this text then is, you know, in the early Christian community, there was a debate about whether following Jesus was a way of being Jewish. Like that is... Do you have to be Jewish in order to follow Jesus? Yeah. Or do you not? And so Cornelius is being set up here as the sort of test case. Here's the best guy you could imagine. He loves God. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He gives alms. He supports the community. But he's a Gentile. And like he's really Gentile. Yeah. And so what are we going to do with that guy? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think the sort of disposition of the book of Acts up until this point would be he can't be a follower of Jesus unless he becomes Jewish first. Yeah. And so this text is sort of entering into that conversation. Like, is it possible to be a true worshiper of God, true follower of Jesus, without taking on the sort of markers of Jewish identity, of circumcision and keeping the halakha and these sorts of things? It reminds me a little bit of the stories we have in the Hebrew Bible of sort of the Jew in the foreign court of like these that that seem to be addressing this question. Can Daniel really be a devout Jew and also fully loyal to the kingdom that he lives in? You know, this is a different angle on it, but it's. Yeah. Yeah. Identity is complicated. It is. It's exceedingly complicated. That's, that's, I like that comparison. So this is sort of almost the opposite of that. It's like, can it's you like be kind a, of the opposite of that, yeah. right? Can you be fully immersed in your national ethnic identity that is not of the people Israel and also be fully committed to the God of Israel right? in a way that will, you know, play out specifically through Jesus? Should we, should we think or wonder where Jesus is in this story? Like, do you imagine this guy had ever heard of Jesus or should I just put that question away? That is a good question. That is a good question. My my sense of it is no. 
And so yeah. he's going to get the gospel declared to him, the gospel of Jesus at the end of this text. Yeah. And so the way that the way that I think this text is supposed to be entering into our minds is here is a Gentile God-fearer who believes that he cannot fully worship the God of the Jews without converting. And for whatever reason, he hasn't done that. He hasn't been mm-hmm. circumcised. He hasn't. And so he he's sort of reached a barrier. Yeah. And that's he's just kind of stuck there. And so then the the Jesus angle is going to is going to open up another possibility. Yeah. But this text is sort of assuming that from a, the Jewish perspective, Cornelius actually can't properly worship God or be mm-hmm. a part of the of God's community without doing these sort of ritual conversion sorts of things. I don't know if that's actually true of how Jews in the first century would have thought about a God-fearer or not, but that's that's yeah. the way the text is That seems to be that perspective it. of the text, yeah. Oh my gosh, I could talk about Jewish identity and faith and whatever forever, but we're it's a long reading, so we <laughs> <laughs> should probably move on a little bit. It tells us that his prayers and alms have ascended mm. as a memorial before God. Yeah. And I just find it, I don't know, I think it, it had this little like ding in my head that was, it's not, it doesn't say his faith yeah, or his, it's not the internal state. Mm. It's the things that he's doing. Yes. I don't really know what to say about that other than it's, it's, it stood out to me. But I'm not sure what to do with the fact that it says as a memorial. What do you think that means? So there's a couple of things there. One is, you know, that word that's translated as alms there, so it means giving to the poor. It can also refer to sort of compassionate acts or like acts of mercy toward the needy, Mm. which bridges that gap just a little bit between, you know, the religious, the liturgical act and the Mm -hmm. act of justice, which Mm -hmm. we've been talking about all spring. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like in that there, it is a, it is a religious observation like he is doing it religiously, but there is compassion toward the vulnerable that's kind of in mind here. The the CEB gives it as compassionate acts, which is what which is why I was thinking about that. Alms to me just sounds like yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like I don't I don't I don't ever think of myself as having given an alm, although maybe <laughs> I'm sure that I must have. But yeah. uh, compassionate acts. Or, but he's doing it for religious reasons, like because because he loves uh, God. That. Memorial offering, I think, is so interesting because it's sort of suggesting something like in the way that, you know, if, if you worship in the temple, you would make a grain offering or a meat offering and the odor would rise up before God and God would remember you. Uh, this is that, except that it's the compassionate acts that are sort of f- performing that function, mm-hmm. which I think fits in with a lot of things that we've been saying about Matthew's gospel and going back to like, you know, Amos and elsewhere the sort of idea that the things that you do are the things or the, yeah, the way you treat the vulnerable, those are the things that matter to God. And they, they can uh, perform as sort of liturgical function in themselves, even though they're not like properly uh, worship, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, done in a worshipful setting or or whatever. Mm -hmm. I didn't say that quite right, but you know what I mean? No, I do know what you mean. And, And I feel like it connects directly to that passage that we read um, in the gospel, that was, you know, the way that you have treated all these vulnerable folks who have crossed yes. your path is is precisely the way you have treated Jesus, even if even if you didn't mean to, even, even if you didn't know. know what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And it takes you back to the Hebrew prophets and I desire mercy, not sacrifice and things like that, mm-hmm. that are long in that tradition as well, that acts of mercy and compassion do have a pleasing effect for God, Yeah, which doesn't necessarily have to displace temple ritual, but it has a, it has a important role in temple ritual here. Cornelius presumably is not allowed in the temple fully in the temple as a Gentile. So these kind of compassionate acts are what he's got to sort of offer God and God receives them from him in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think the last question I have for this section is, you know, so he, he receives this message and he calls for two of his slaves and a devout soldier. So maybe also a God fearing soldier. I think so. Yeah. And sends them on this errand that the angel, you know, told him should happen. First, he tells them everything. Oh, yeah. And I'm just so curious about why and how that relates to the fact that the soldier he chose was devout. I mean, presumably there weren't too many soldiers yeah. in his Italian cohort who were devout. I don't know. How do, how do you how do you think about that? Oh, I love that question. I want to know what you think about that. I feel like you have thought through that because otherwise you wouldn't have gotten to that question. Can you tell me what you're thinking? I mean, I... I, I'll tell you what I'm wondering. One is that one possibility is, you know, if he thought, you know, people can be kind of slipshod in a mission or they, (laughs) or they cannot, you know, and, and maybe it would be motivating, especially to someone who's identified as devout Mm -hmm. to know that like you're, 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 (laughs) what movie is it? That's like, we're on a mission from God, but like you are, you're on a mission from God to bring this bring this guy back. I also wonder, maybe this, I don't know what I'm projecting here, but I wonder if he wanted to be, I mean, I would imagine it could be a little bit lonely to be a a person of, a person who is devout to the God of Israel, who is not part of the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if he kind of wanted a witness to this yeah. Some crazy things just happened, and I have to tell. S- yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I, I can't just hold it by myself. Like I have to tell. I have to tell some people. I really love that second reading of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's totally possible to read it as like these folks need to know why they're on this mission, and so he told it to them. But that is so boring. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the second idea that like he's had this, like he really he's had an angel afony. Like this is amazing, uh-huh. and he needs to tell somebody. And he needs to tell somebody who will appreciate it and not think he's like mm-hmm. crazy or a traitor or whatever. And so he's chosen these sort of special folks from his household and this one devout soldier. And he's sort of sharing something of himself with them. I really like that, sort of personalizing the mission that they're on. Sharing, he's letting them share in it with them. I also think mm-hmm. that, you know, if, you know, he doesn't really know at this point why exactly he's supposed to send for Peter. That's right. But the fact that the angel of the Lord is addressing him, the Roman God-fearer, is good news for these other folks who are also Roman God-fearers, presumably. And so, I mean, like something's happening for us, guys, you know? So he's reaching out beyond himself. I, th- I think that I think that's a really nice reading. You know, I had not put together that, you know, it says earlier, and I kind of made a joke about it, like who feared God with all his household, that the yeah. slaves are part of his household. Yeah. So he has a whole a trio of folks here 
Right. Who fear God. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So I could definitely see um, them having some excitement about that. Yeah. They've been kind of cut off from the mothership. but Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I love about this little section is that everybody's name is Simon. <laughs> oh my god! I, I know. It's, I it's, it's so. so I mean, it's one of these things that you're like, okay, they re- these dudes really have to have been named Simon. Like someone didn't make that up because yeah. nobody would make that. Why would you write that story? Like, yeah. <laughs> this guy was also named Simon, but we didn't call him Simon. <laughs> yeah. This guy was a. So you got to call the second one the know. Tanner. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think of Simon the Tanner. Like, I mean, I know that's somebody who like tans hides or whatever, but I really like to think of him as somebody who likes to lie out in the sun, <laughs> like lather himself up with suntan mm-hmm. lotion. Mm-hmm. Simon who is tanning. You're looking for someone who's gotten a lot of sun. Yeah. Yeah. It also reminds me of a, from my childhood, uh, picture pages. Did you know picture pages? That well, is you know, a meaningful my phrase. name is Simon. Oh, and yes. And I draw come true. <laughs> <laughs> so I love not only oh, that they have wow. the same name, but that their name is Simon. Yeah. That, is, that really does add a different element. It does. It. I probably have ruined And Simon now. now is going to have, well, Simon Peter is going to have such a crazy vision. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm so happy that you <laughs> sang me that song, Bobby. <laughs> okay. Are we ready to... Press on. Pages, picture pages, time to do some picture pages. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. We've lost Bobby, folks. Okay. So the next section should be verse 9 to 17. I'm going to tack on a couple verses really just for the sake of context because then it skips a whole chunk and I just want us to be able to follow the plot. So I'm going to read through verse 20. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. This is the craziest, like, picnic trance like a, a picnic yeah. blanket comes down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's 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 how I picture what's happening. Okay. Oh, I like it if it's like a red checkered, like one of those like stereotypical picnic blankets. Yeah. yeah. I like mm-hmm. thinking of it that way. Well, you're fancy that you have that. We just use sheets for picnic blankets. Oh, yeah, we do. Now, we so. totally do too. But I have this like <laughs> idealized picnic blanket in my head. I think it's the... Um, yeah, my family used to eat popcorn when I was a little kid. We used to sit on the sort of... I guess it was vinyl or something, but it was red checkered. And that's, I just realized that's like when I, when you say picnic, like that's what I envision. Red checkers. 
Anyway. I love that. Maybe it was red checkered. I'm very into my childhood today. I guess it's because it's my birthday. Because it's your birthday. And death is drawing ever closer. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, Okay, we'll talk about that another time. So, okay. He's he goes up to the roof to pray. It seems he's having some kind of hunger induced coma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I or think that I always think that's kind of funny. The, he has a visionary experience because he's really hungry. Right. Instead of just getting like hangry, he like yeah. goes into a trance and yeah. has some kind of um, experience. I mean, really, what? It's such an interesting detail about being hungry and waiting for food when this happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I take it just as like the things that are happening in the world around you. I don't, I'm not a visionary person really, but you know how when something's happening and you incorporate it into your dreams or something like that, that's kind of how I, mm. how I read this, where he's taken what's really happening in his life and he's sort of incorporated it into his visionary experience. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I think, I think the connection between the fact that he is hungry yeah. and he's you know, being offered in a vision food, but they're food items that I don't know if this would be overstating it from his perspective, but if these are not things that he eats because he keeps kosher, they're not food items to him. Like yeah. it's like items you, I would have to try to imagine like shrimp falls into this category for me. It doesn't yeah. matter how hungry I am. That's not a food item. Like like I could give you, I don't know what it is you yeah. don't eat, but like you Slugs. can offer things, right? Whatever is eaten, it could be eaten. It is edible. Yeah. But in your head, it's not right. food. Right. I'm really curious. Okay, this is sort of like, I don't know, an imagination question, or maybe a, Amy's pressing the text too far. But if we try to grab onto this hunger idea. Yeah. Peter is hungry and is being offered something that can be eaten, but he doesn't think of as food. And he's being told, no, it is food. Right. If you try to take that example and sort of map it onto, if if we imagine that before, gosh, this is probably like really overstating this in a crass way, but the Cornelius is not imagined as a person who could have been a follower of right. Jesus because he's not in the category of people who could be followers of Jesus. Right. Does the does the the like sort of visceral sense of hunger that underlies this whole thing, does that animate this in any particular way for you? Like the note on my paper is God is hungry for humans? No, that's not right. <laughs> like <laughs> in Cornelius oh, counts. Yeah. But no, I had never really thought that much about the hunger before. I mean, you know, this comparison is going to get made here in the text in a little in a minute. Yeah, but not in such a crass way. <laughs> but God is hungry for humans. I'm going to have to work with that one a little bit. <laughs> like hungry, hungry hippo. No, I've taken this in a bad direction. <laughs> so I struggle with the idea that God is hungry for humans. <laughs> I'm going to. I don't know. I see where you're I going. I have to ponder that one for a minute. But this idea, if you flip it around and say that. Cornelius is hungry for God. To me, that's like, I've not thought about it that way before, but it like, it's now it's resonating with me. Like there's a thing, uh, Mm. Peter really desires to eat and Cornelius really desires God. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, that seems impossible for them. So I have to, Mm. I have to twist yours a little bit. Like in my head, Peter really wishes he could eat shrimp, but he can't. 
yeah. which is different <laughs> than like the shrimp is like a slug, <laughs> you know? Um, and so like, that's the way I frame it and for myself is Peter wishes he could eat these things, but he can't. Cornelius wishes he could worship, like worship this God fully, but he can't. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this kind of visceral experience for both of these fellow these fellows and in this moment, they're both they're both feeling excluded from the possibility of fulfilling their hunger. Yeah. To me, that resonates really well. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. And it's um I think there's a lot of play space sort of within that. Yeah. But really latching on to the the idea of hunger as this like it's a deeply embodied need. Like yes. this is a human need. It's like a craving. It's a, you know. Is it? <laughs> it's a need. It's how we're made. We need yes. it. Yeah. Do you make anything in particular of the fact that this happens three times? I mean, I only make something of it in the sense that it, like the repetition means that it wasn't like accidental. Yeah. Peter didn't under, misunderstand something. Like this is, this is really what is intended here. And the three, the number three, of course, you can do all sorts of things with, especially yeah, you if you're Christian. With, but, mm-hmm. but I don't find it particularly, like, I don't know that there's a fruitful way for me yeah. of dealing with the threes. I'm just trying to imagine, like, so be, so God and Peter are arguing about Leviticus 11, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and God is, I, this is the way I read this. You, you may be able to help me out. God is like, eh, Leviticus 11. And Peter's like, no, for real. Like, have you read the Bible, <laughs> God? Mm-hmm. You know? And so it's such a strange thing. Like, Peter is saying, I know the scripture. And the scripture says, I can't eat these things. And yet here is God saying, I, I also know the scripture, but I'm inviting you to eat these things. It's such an interesting moment in, like, textual scriptural authority. And, like, in what sense is the yeah. is Leviticus... I mean, the whole Torah, like it calls, it, the whole Torah now suddenly becomes this like, well, can God reinterpret it if God wants to? Yeah. And Peter, all in the world he's doing is being a biblical literalist, right? He's saying, no, it's there in the scripture. Like you said it, you gave it to Moses. Like, I'm not supposed to do this. Yeah. It's just a fascinating moment. It's just a fascinating moment. That's really, I, I love that you brought that in and and what is, standing out to me now as you say that is I kind of wish that the voice okay I can't wish things I can wish things I can do whatever you can I want. wish things the, sure you can the, I wish that the voice had just said like I changed my mind about that like to right. acknowledge <laughs> yeah it's not it because otherwise it's not clear whether the voice is saying that was never accurate and I don't know what there's a scribal error that is a right. lot <laughs> is prevalent right. Or if it's like undermining the authority of all this stuff. Cause like this is a, it's a pretty big deal. It's big, big, big. Yes. So what does it mean? What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Although, you know, it's interesting as we, as we will see as this chapter unfolds, this all is sort of a, a metaphor for the Cornelius situation. Right. So whether this is actually saying you can go eat a cat, like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't. I, I, don't I know. like the shrimp example better, but yeah, the cat, yeah. <laughs> it was four feet. The cat. Yeah, I mean, so you know, Peter is going to make this connection a little bit later between these two examples, but in this moment, yeah, and you know, Peter does go on 
in his life to eat. He eats with Gentiles. I'm not sure if he yeah. stops following the actual yeah. like food practices or not. Yeah. So in some sense, like what's urgently important in this text as a whole is about who, like what people are pure and impure, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. But this idea, like what the question you're raising of, did God change God's mind or did somebody, did Moses write something mm-hmm. in Leviticus that God never intended to be there? I think that's an important question. The, the way that I have always read this, and I think that probably the, where I want to start is that God's free to change God's mind about things that God has said in the past. And that is, that's not uncommon in the biblical text that mm-hmm. God will start one way and then reverse course to someplace else. So I have always read this as, yeah, there, there was a time when those things were actually called impure. And now that time is over. And those mm-hmm. things are now, no, that now those things are, are clean or those things are pure now. Those things are I'm available to you now. So it's a God sort of broadening mm-hmm. or something. Or, or again, to like move it into a different register, because I'm not sure whether they're actually talking about Kashrut here or right. he's just taking advantage of the, the need that Peter has in this moment. Right. Because I feel like it is less clear to me in the biblical text that there is a, a category of people that is unclean in some, like I, yes, it's, it's complicated sort of national, ethnic, and tribal identities yeah. and how it was all mixed together with religious observance and, and whatnot. But a sort of loosening of that right. to me is not such a stark, is not yes. as stark of a change as, as telling you to eat your cat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I think that, that that's helpful, Amy. Because, I mean, this turns out, as, as we will know, uh, not to actually be about kashrut. Right. And, and like, it's going to move on to being about humans. And so... Don't eat humans either. <laughs> the issue about whether... Yeah, don't eat those. The issue about whether this is food or not, really, yeah. you know, like the, in the text, it turns out that's not what's, what's at issue. And so I yeah. appreciate you're saying it that way. And you're exactly right. I mean, in the first century in Judaism, there were, as there are now, widely divergent practices about exactly what does it mean and who can you eat with and, you know, all of these kinds of things. So there there were Jewish groups for whom eating with a Gentile, being in touch with a Gentile was considered to be unclean. So Gentiles sort of yeah. in their Gentileness were impure. But there were also Jews for whom that was not the case. Yeah. And so this text seems to be responding to the sort of very conservative, the sort of the, like strictest interpretation of that mm-hmm. to say like, you know, members of the Jewish community, he would say, no, a Gentile actually is not someone that we can interact with in any way. Yeah. This text is reacting against that. Yeah. But it's yeah. really important to say then as now, that was not the only way that Jews were thinking about that. Yes. The other thing that I love about this little section of text is like the way that God is working here with the visions. It's almost like, like when, when you have a friend who's trying to play matchmaker and they like, <laughs> they call one of their friends and like, I know this person that you might like. And then they call another one and like working behind the scenes. Like God's kind of doing that right here where it's like this whole thing, Cornelius has been motivated toward Peter 
at God's initiative and Peter is being motivated toward Cornelius at God's initiative. Mm-hmm. And so they, they both only have part of the picture. And so God's like the matchmaker here that's making it all work. I just think that's a really, I really like that image of God is orchestrating this whole interaction. I love that. And I, what I thought you were going to say, but I'm, I'm glad you said what you did say. But another thing to say is that God is communicating with each of them in a way that sort of represents their need at that moment. Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Peter's hungry. And so he gets, he gets a vision about food and a voice. He doesn't see an angel. Maybe right. he doesn't need to see an angel. He's already in pretty deep. And Cornelius sees an angel that is, yeah. you know, scary and profound to him. And that's, that's his, you know, as you were saying before, yeah. like that's what he needs. That is his craving yeah. right now is that kind of, that kind of contact. Yeah. Hi, my name is John Weicker, and I am the Associate Pastor for Youth and Their Families at First Presbyterian Church of Durham, North Carolina. I am a Bible Worm supporter at the Bible Worm supporter level, $48 per year. And I do that not because we're on the narrative lectionary or even because I preach that often, although when I do preach and the texts line up, I certainly use the podcast. I actually use Bible Worm as my own personal devotion for the week. I'm someone who misses the deep theology and close reading of texts that I got to do a lot of in seminary. And in Bobby and Amy's work, I found that again. And so I listen on Monday mornings on my way over to church and then Monday afternoons on the way back as a way to prepare for the week, to do ministry, and to love Jesus and serve. I hope you'll join me in becoming a Bible Worm supporter too. And now back to this week's episode. Okay. Um, should we press on? I think so. Okay. So the text skips a bit to verse 34, but I think the main thing to know is Peter goes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So the men have come. Cornelius has sent them to Peter. They've said, Peter, come back to Cornelius with us. And so Peter goes back to Cornelius. And then the text is going to pick up back in Caesarea with in Cornelius's place. Great. So I am picking up then in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak with them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread through Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So I want to take the beginning of this first because at least the the way that I read it, I feel like the message shift, shifted over the course of the uh, the speech. Oh, yeah. To me, at least. 
in these first two verses, it's just such a lovely and open, open door statement. You know, yes. I God shows no partiality in every nation. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Yes. And I, you know, reading this text as a, a Jewish person, I was like, oh, this text doesn't dislike me for not following Jesus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which later on it maybe does. But yeah. do you, I don't know. I, it's hard. Like I wrote this question. I sort of write questions as I read, sort of as sure. it's unfolding, not like after a chunk. And so the question I wrote here is, do you like really, really like realistically think that the reason that there's no upfront mention of the fact that like, oh, but there is a catch and it's Jesus, that they just had like, that is that just because Jesus and God are somewhat interchangeable terms at this point in history or that, I don't know, maybe the question really is, are you surprised or what do you think of the fact that Jesus isn't sort of front loaded in that first statement? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that I want to do is li- is linger <laughs> before Jesus gets introduced there, because I think that's such a lovely image. Back in verse 28, Peter had said, uh, God has shown me that I should never call a person impure or unclean. Mm. And and then the, the category becomes, in verse 34, as you were saying, everybody uh, who worships God and does what is right is acceptable. To me, like, just if you just pause there and think about the radicality of that. I just want to rest there no, for just a moment. No, I think that's moment. exactly right. That is a yeah. radical statement. Yeah. Because you can, I mean, I can name off the top of my head, you know, 10 groups of people that are called unclean all of the time by mm-hmm. Christians in the world today. And this text is saying you should never call anybody unclean because of who they are. But instead, you should look at you know, how they live their life, people who are compassionate and and so on. And I think that's a really, really important message. The bit about Jesus, like, so I just, yeah, I like to linger there before that Jesus gets introduced, but I think your question about Jesus is really important. Can you, can you come back at it a little bit? I mean, Again, it's sort of like it's a, you know, zero entry pool. Like it it goes gradually. So when Jesus is first introduced, I understand, I understood it to be, you know, this is true because this great guy, Jesus came and told you. Yes. And all of that, I was like, okay, cool, cool. <laughs> yes. And then you get this whole, this whole sort of, we're going to run down this whole story with you that reminds me of these speeches that you find in like the Deuteronomic history where there's this pause in the plot and it's like, we're going to tell the story of our people, the foundational story of our group with attention to whatever seems most important to whoever's holding the pen. Yes. So before we get to this bigger question of what is, what really are the requirements (laughs) to be considered, you know, quote unquote, uh, acceptable to God, is there anything that you notice in particular about what is included in the story of the foundation of this Jesus following community or what is not included? Like what, what seem, what are, what are the most important things about this community's foundation? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I like about the book of Acts is at several points along the way, you get these kind of speeches mm-hmm. where we see, I mean, and obviously we don't know what the historical Peter really said, but like this is the way the book of Acts imagines. Mm-hmm. If you've got to give the gospel in short term, mm-hmm. like what's it going to be? And here it is. And it is about Jesus having been empowered to go around healing people and freeing people who are oppressed by the devil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know quite what we do with that freeing people who are oppressed by the devil, but, you know, I, of course, want to bring it back to the counterposing forces to God. Mm-hmm. And at some level, that is those of us who are bought into the the ways of the empire. And so Jesus's, Jesus's mission was to show compassion to people and to set people free from the things that, that, that oppress them. And they killed him for it. And so to me, like, yeah, I mean, this is what happens to prophets, right? Prophets get killed by the powers that are in opposition to the for- the work of life in the world. Mm-hmm. And then the sort of idea about resurrection is the power of life, God's power to bring life overcomes the devil, the empire, the world's capacity to bring death. And mm-hmm. and therein lies the capa- therein lies the good news of the gospel. Right. Right? And so we know we know that from Peter's perspective, because that's what happened to Jesus. And so we follow, we follow Jesus, we follow that God, because that God is a God of life. One of the things that I think is interesting about this idea of forgiveness and repentance is that it sort of, I think, intends that we would simultaneously think of ourselves as being on the side of the forces of the world that killed Jesus and also the possibility that we could be forgiven for that. And he's talking to a Roman centurion who very much is in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we read it properly, mm. we would not think like, oh yeah, the non-Christians killed Jesus. And so they're bad. And we Christians believe in Jesus. We're good. It's that the world that we live in is this kind of world that kills prophets. And we don't have to live that way we can live some other kind of way. So, uh, you know, you know me, I'm always worried about uh, texts that let me off the hook too easily. And so <laughs> like, I want, I want to think about that as like, yeah, I do participate in a world that kills prophets. I do participate in a world that did and would kill Jesus. And, and so there's a call for repentance about that. I'm not sure I actually answered your question, <laughs> but that's what oh, I'm thinking. I don't even remember what my question was because that was really... <laughs> It was really interesting. Yeah, I just am feeling so struck by like the complexity of identity and the way that religious beliefs are tied to or not tied to identity then and now. Yeah. And the way that we exist in in the world as oppressors and oppressed and, you know, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I I don't, I'm struck still by the radicalness of verses 34 and 35. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The longer I have read Luke and Acts, and I mean in Matthew too, the more I have thought that the, these sorts of passages are not trying to talk about Jews. They're trying to talk about Gentiles. And so when they say Jesus Christ is Lord of all, I mean, I think that means Jesus Christ is Lord of all. <laughs> but yeah. I think that this text understands that Jews have access to this power of God because... They have the Torah because 
they have been chosen by God. And what is radical here is that now that sort of special relationship that Jews have had with God is now also open to Gentiles. And it's open to Gentiles because of Jesus. Yeah. I don't actually read this as calling for Jewish conversion in any kind of particular way. I mean, it might, it might like that. It might, it might wish for that. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's the God who is the God of both Jews and Christians that is the power here. And what's, what this text is trying to say is like, that's now available to everyone. Gentiles don't have the Torah or uh, this interpretation of Cornelius is that the way that the Gentile Cornelius is reading the Torah makes him feel excluded from full worship of this God. And what Jesus does is make God fully available to Gentiles. Yeah. Bobby, I have one more question about this section. I know we need to press forward and we can decide this is too big and we're going to push it to that end or, or it's just too big and we're going to delete it. Those are your options. Okay. Okay. But so this passage ends, it starts with the idea of who is acceptable to God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it ends with anyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. Yeah. And I'm wondering about the relationship between the forgiveness of sins mm-hmm. and being acceptable to God. Like, do you see those mm. things as sort of looping back in a circle or has this, or has this been more of a linear I would not have thought beginning, I mean, probably because I'm not Christian, but I would not have thought reading those first two sentences that part of doing what is right is seeking forgiveness for your sins. Yeah. I want to I talk about that, but I want to read the rest of the text first. Okay, great. So then I'm going to pick up in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. That's pretty good proof right there. Can can you say more? (laughs) No, I mean, like God really sort of backs this up big time by sending the whole spirit, the Holy Spirit, on the Gentiles who are listening. Yes. So now, you don't just have to believe what Peter is saying. It is right. it is demonstrated that this yes. is what God thinks. You get like a very clear stamp of approval on what. <laughs> what I mean, it almost is like Peter didn't even have to say any of that stuff. God could have just sent yeah. the. I mean, yeah the Holy Spirit out. And then what are you really going to do? Say, no, we can't baptize them. Obviously, this goes right back to that scene, like what God has made clean. You can't claim to be unclean. God has clearly had the Holy Spirit upon these people. What are you really going to do? You're not going to baptize them? Yeah. And Amy, that's exactly the way the story plays out in the next chapter is the Mm. church in Jerusalem, which is still thinking you have to be Jewish to be Christian, says, Peter, what on earth are you doing baptizing these Gentiles? And Peter does, I mean, he does, but his main point is not, I had a vision, but I saw, look what the Holy Spirit is doing. How can you say that we can't include people when the Holy Spirit is already including them? They're already doing it. And yeah. so this is exactly that moment. And it comes back, like the reason I wanted to read this is because Peter has just finished saying, everybody who believes in, in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. 
But while he's still speaking, the Holy Spirit comes on Mm. Cornelius and everyone. Mm -hmm. And so there has been no moment in which Cornelius or anyone has confessed belief in Jesus or has Mm. asked for Mm -hmm. forgiveness or has repented Mm. of anything they have done wrong. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit precedes that. Now, it does end up with baptizing in the name of Jesus, And so I think this text, I mean, it's a Christian text. Yeah, right, right. So I think this text thinks that the the way this should go is once the Holy Spirit has come upon people, then they would be baptized in the name of Jesus. Yeah. But that's different in a way that's important to me anyway, that it's not that the Holy Spirit waits for baptism Mm -hmm. or even for confession Mm -hmm. before it's available to you, but God just says, whoosh, here's the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And the spirit does what it will. The spirit welcomes who it will. And so, I mean, it's a complicated little relationship here. But I think part of the way I read it is God works outside of the categories that we have mm-hmm. for who can God work with. The spirit goes where the spirit goes. Yeah. And then it draws people in, right? And it yeah. draw, here it's drawing them into the Christian community. But the... In the understanding of this text, the Jewish community is actually not available to Cornelius. Mm-hmm. And so it's drawing it's drawing them into the same family, the, the family of the same God through Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's, I love that. And I was, you know, one of the questions I wrote down for this part was, um, like, do we imagine, who was even in this crowd? Like, right. do we imagine, you know, we know that Cornelius and his household are, yeah believers in the, in this God. And we know that, you know, at least one of his soldiers is, but were the people in this crowd devout and then the Holy Spirit came or did the Holy Spirit come and then they were moved and they, you know, like it, yeah, we, we as humans want to set up a specific pathway, but it, it doesn't, it's not clear, at least in the text, that that any kind of particular pathway, or that even the pathway for all the people who are in this scene yeah. together has been the same. Yeah. No, that's right. Back in verse 24, it says that uh, Cornelius gathered his relatives and close friends. And so mm. the people in this crowd seem to be people who know Cornelius, but there's nothing said, as, as far as I can tell. I'm reading a little quickly here, but yeah, but exactly about that, like, some of them are clearly God-fearers because mm-hmm. some of Cornelius's household was. But I love that observation that they may be sort of coming from all different kinds of angles here. And the Holy Spirit is not really differentiating among them. I also love that the, the believers who are more restrictive in verse 45 mm-hmm. are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what is happening here. We thought God only worked in certain kinds of categories. Mm -hmm. But here we see evidence that God is clearly working outside of our categories. And like, there's nothing we can do about it, (laughs) right? God is not uh, bound by the things that we thought God should be bound by, including the scripture, going back to the vision on the roof. Even if you can find a Mm -hmm. scripture that says God is still yet free to work outside those categories. Yeah. Think. Yeah, gosh, it's so, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this yet, but we're starting to think about our summer series, which, uh, so so I'm thinking a lot about holiness and and the way that idea plays out in the Hebrew Bible. It does have a lot, 
a lot to do with separation of so that some things can be sort of special and set apart yeah. in some way. Yeah. But, and that idea can really go off the rails. Yeah. Like we don't necessarily want to have a life where everything is even all the time. Yeah. But as you know, as we can see, that idea can go crazy if you start putting everything into categories and saying the most important thing is the category you're in. Right. Then you sort of have forgotten the whole like I don't know, the forest for the trees, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. Set apartness versus separation for a sake of a category. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, set apartness to be special yes. versus Yeah. Oh, Bobby, there's some good stuff in here. Is there more you want to say about this section before we move towards concluding remarks? I mean, for me, this text, there's there's always more to say about this text. There is always more to say about this text. Yes. But I think we have said, I think we have said. What we can say in roughly an hour. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so then taking all of this. And I picture like holding it in open palms and it's like really overflowing through our palms because there's a lot. The last reading we had was like five verses. I know, I know. <laughs> so our, our palms overflow here. Uh, what what would you want to raise up for folks to think about? It's so interesting talking about this text with you as with many texts because, you know, I want to read this text as what is this text significance internal to my own Christian community. And then you're always inviting me to think about what does it mean for people who are outside of that community? But I want to come back to like my own community simply to say that my experience of Christians, many of us, internal to our own community is that we really like drawing lines about who is and is not sort of acceptable within the community. It plays out in all sorts of ways. And I and I am as guilty of it as anyone else. For me, particularly people who have certain theological perspectives that I find uh, off-putting, then <laughs> I think of myself as, some, as something different than them. But I'm also thinking about a place like Mercy Church, where I was pastor for a long time, where that community was like, I mean, many folks were homeless. We had all sorts of trans women in that community and members of the LGBT community who didn't find welcome elsewhere, who many churches would say, you cannot be part of us, you can't come here. So this text in which the benchmark is not, like there is no person who is unclean in this text. There is no person who by their nature does not belong. But what matters is, can you see evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in that person? When you start thinking that way, for me, it totally changes everything. Like, can I see evidence that God is at work in the life of that person? And if so, then God is at work in the life of that person. And therefore, that person belongs to the community of God, whether or not I think there's someone who sort of should belong based on categories that I've been given. For me, that has been a really radical reorientation kind of of everything that sort of perspective has really transformed the way that I think about people. And so when I, I try, and I think this text is calling us to, when we encounter a person, we are looking for evidence of God's work in their life. And we are not thinking about what category they belong to and whether they are clean or unclean. 
We're not looking through the scriptures trying to figure out which people God does and doesn't want us to relate to. We're just looking and saying, can I see in this person evidence of compassion, evidence of kindness, evidence mm-hmm. of the presence of God in their life? And if so, then they're, they're my people. And I, and, I, and I need to be with them and I need to share with them and I need to welcome them and be welcomed by them. I just, I love this text because it, it breaks a lot of categories that I feel like need to be broken. And it opens us up in this different kind of way to looking for the positives in other people. Mm. I love that. I love all of that. And I, um, you know, I just was, uh, you know, I'm reading with my Torah study group. We're in First Kings now. We're reading through the whole Tanakh. And we were just reading about uh, King Solomon's dedication of his temple. You know, King Solomon is is this king who has connections to many other nations. He is not an isolationist by any means. But he includes in this long prayer for his hope for the temple and the role that it can play for the people, that it will be a place where God-fearing people of all nations Mm. can direct their prayers and direct their hearts as they, as, as they address God. So it's, you know, it's a funny thing to read a, a, a text, especially like that, the open part of the text, as you said, as a, a Jewish person, because in so many ways, like I am, I am totally right there with you, that of course those are the things that, that matter to God and that matter to being part, sure. of, part of God's people. And the and I wrestle sometimes as a modern person and quasi-universalist, as I think many, well, I shouldn't say what other people are, but I think I kind of am, with the, with the specificities that comes with some of my tradition. Yeah. You know, Judaism, like many ancient religions, is not just a set of, it's not, a, it's not just a religion. It's a civilization. And, yeah. and a lot of the, richness and beauty and particularity and specificity that that is so embodied and real and true to me comes through through that grounded real human history and language and food and blah 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 all that stuff. Yeah. And a real question for for my community now is how how we then really get real about the fact that that Judaism in different parts of the world now you know, it's not that it, it, there are Jews all over the world and the way Judaism looks depends where in the world you are and yeah. the sort of surrounding cultures that you're interacting with. And how do we create a Jewish, a current modern Jewish civilization that, that really looks like the diversity of Judaism, Judaism's yeah. in the civilizations in which it exists. Yeah, I I can't just put aside. I I don't want to just put aside entirely what is what is someone's background beyond their religion. Not to certainly not to have it as a qualifying point, but I think I think that's where a lot of beauty and richness in our traditions mm-hmm. comes. And so it's it's a real question: how do we weave those things together in a way that is still open and sufficiently? familiar that that many people will feel at home but also recognizes the diversity of human cultures that makes up our religious communities mm, that's really lovely mm, mm. i don't know it's complicated at least <laughs> it's very much complicated yeah i really love that amy that question of how we think both about 
broadening our own traditions and also about how we recognize the value in people beyond our traditions and the diversity of people within our traditions. I, I think that's a persistent question that, that I want to come back to again and again. Mm. Bobby, next week we will read what is what is called by the narrative lectionary Paul's mission. So it'll take us ahead a few chapters to Acts chapter 13 and a little bit into uh, 13 and 14. Yeah. But before we say goodbye, may I offer you a birthday blessing? Oh, thank you. Yes, that'd be lovely. This is the priestly blessing from the book of Numbers. May God bless you and keep you. May God make God's face to shine upon you and show you favor. May God lift God's face to you and give you peace. Amen. May it be so for all of us. May it be so. I'll see you next time. All right, Amy. See you then. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many, many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next week as we read about Paul's mission in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Until then, keep on digging.